Can you give us a preview of when the next lawsuits by Dominion will be filed? I'm not here to make news on that front, but let me say this. Mike Lindell is begging to be sued, and at some point we may well oblige him. How does that my pillow guy sleep at night? How does he? I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KZO. Eugene's KEPW in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KOTX, Janesville, Wisconsin's W-A-D-R and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast. Just a quick thanks off the top here to my friend Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show. She filled in for us on Friday's Bradcast, and if you missed that one, it was a good one including a, uh, a great interview with author and investigative journalist Craig Unger on his brand-new book entitled American Compromat, documenting, among other things, the Kremlin's 40-year-long effort to cultivate one Donald Trump as an asset, as detailed by, you know, former KGB operatives and such. But also, if you missed that show, uh, Nicole ran a terrific segment on a special order session in uh, in the U.S. House organized by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that allowed House members to tell their chilling stories of their experiences on January 6th when the Trump-incited mob stormed the U.S. Capitol in the attempted insurrection for which Trump is now facing his second impeachment trial this week. Uh, more on that in a moment. But the testimony from folks like Pramila Jayapal and Cory Bush, uh, frankly, was simply chilling and extraordinarily moving. Uh, and with everything else going on last week, that congressional session uh, largely got lost entirely in the shuffle, and uh, it really shouldn't. And and I do hope that the Democratic House ma uh, managers who are running the impeachment trial in the Senate this week 
use some of that extraordinarily moving testimony from their own fellow members uh, in some fashion or another, whether it's calling them in as live witnesses or playing clips of their testimony from last week. I don't know, Uh, but I'm not sure how anyone could look at that, could listen to that and not be moved by those stories. Uh, Also, some big news on Friday that I believe came in too late for the broadcast. Uh, But boy, am I glad. Desi Doyen, I am gladder and gladder with each passing day that I wrote that investigative deep dive report back in 2010. (laughs) The one that documented the purchase of a voting machine company that was once owned by a company named Smartmatic. The purchase was by a Canadian company that you likely have heard of by now named uh, Dominion Voting Systems. So my 2010 exclusive uh, at the time actually pulled together a whole bunch of threads that I had been reporting on at bradblog.com and and here on the air as early as, uh, well, 2005, 2006, 2008, uh, at which time before he, he seems to have now gone completely insane, Lou Dobbs was a that back then a fairly well respected, if right leaning, business reporter on CNN. Uh, he was that's not my imagination, right? Does he was not always crazy? No, at the time when he was working at CNN, he was he was pretty sane, if pretty far you know to the right. Yeah. But you know, he was a business guy. But he was at least sane right. and val and, and valued uh, verifiable reporting. And he actually was doing a respectable job of covering. Uh, issues of election integrity. He was one of the very few people in the media who were doing so, including the concerns uh, at the time of a voting machine company with a whole lot of uh, business in the U.S. that was tied to another voting machine company by the name of Smartmatic, which was in turn tied to Hugo Chavez's Venezuela. So Lou Dobbs's coverage at the time Again, one of the very few mainstream outlets to even report on concerns about computerized voting and counting systems. We, you know, carried a lot of his segments on this at uh, at Bradblog.com. So his coverage helped fuel an investigation back then by the Treasury Department into the foreign ties of the voting machine company that was named Sequoia. It was owned by Smartmatic. It was eventually purchased by Dominion Voting Systems, which, uh, though they are owned uh, by Canadians, that didn't seem to concern Lou Dobbs at all at the time when he was saying, oh, no, we shouldn't have foreign ownership in our voting systems. I guess foreign ownership does not count Canada. <laughs> well, for one, it of course, Canada is a foreign country. But for another, remember, Lou Dobbs was not covering this because he was really interested in election integrity and supporting it. He was interested in it because, oh, it's Venezuela and Hugo Chavez. Exactly. And it was just a way to, you know, take shots at whatever, communist Venezuela, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, in any case, in any event, uh, with his own coverage of private voting system vendors back then in the mid-aughts, he he certainly should have known better when he started simply making stuff up about the companies, uh, these these voting machine companies, simply because Trump's attorneys used my reporting to reimagine what I actually reported accurately. They reimagined it into a baseless, evidence-free, worldwide conspiracy that 
included Hugo Chavez, who has now been dead for seven years, and it included Smartmatic, which has no business whatsoever in the U.S. other than for the first time ever just last year in 2020 in last year's elections in only one county. That county it happens to be right here, Los Angeles County. And somehow this Team Trump, Lou Dobbs, Fox News scheme, uh, you know, was, was claiming that uh, somehow Smartmatic stole the election from Donald Trump in swing states where Smartmatic doesn't even operate at all. They have no business whatsoever in any of the states that were in contention this year. Dominion did, and where Dominion uh, voting systems in their counties, more counties, more Dominion counties actually went to Donald Trump, by the way, than went to Joe Biden. So the theory never made any sense, but it made even less sense when you tossed in Smartmatic, which had nothing to do with the presidential election in any of those battleground states. It was that fact, however, among others, which led to the $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit that was filed against Fox News on Thursday last week. The fact that Lou Dobbs and Fox News and others on the station were just making stuff up about this company Smartmatic. That led to a a $2.7 billion defamation suit uh, filed against Fox News on Thursday. It was also uh, it also names Fox News host Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartiromo, Janine Pirro, or is that Pyro? I'm not sure. As well, uh, some Trump attorneys, uh, Sidney Powell and, and Rudy Giuliani, they were named in the suit as well. And uh, it also led the next day to the sudden firing of the doddering, hardcore Trump dotard Lou Dobbs on Friday. He is out. He's gone. His sudden firing. It was so sudden that, in fact, the guy who was sitting in for him on Friday, he had a guest host in on Friday, uh, said at the end of the hour, Lou will be back on Monday. Lou will not be back on Monday. Lou is not back. And Lou, Lou Dobbs, is actually the one guy at Fox who should have known better. And arguably, he began his own demise 10 years ago because, you know what, I picked up on some of his reporting and vice versa. I think this was back around longer than 10 years, back in 2006. So ironically, some of his reporting paved the way for my own reporting on the issue when I advanced the story with new exclusives. So oddly enough, he kind of paved the way for his own demise 15 years ago. Uh, you know, when he and Trump attorneys 15 years later picked up and reimagined and bastardized my exclusive reporting on these issues to make their phony case that the election was stolen from Trump by a company named Dominion. No, it's Smartmatic. I mean, they just made them, remember, they, they just made them both interchangeable. Oh, yeah, they anywhere, got it completely wrong. They got it completely wrong. Anywhere where Dominion was, they were saying, oh, that was Smartmatic. No, it wasn't Smartmatic. So that has now all led to the long overdue, merciful end of Lou Dobbs's career, which frankly had become a joke after uh, years, uh, you know, spent at the right wing propaganda outlet known as Fox News. 
But the one guy, the one guy who should have known better, the one guy who actually bothered to report on concerns about electronic voting and tabulation systems did himself in. It's rather Oedipal, Oedipus Rex-like. It's, uh, it's quite, a, uh, quite a neat poetic circle, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, uh, not sorry, Lou. Uh, you should have known better. Uh, and I think, well, I don't know, maybe at his age he was una- unable to properly read the well-documented report at bradblog.com uh, any better than the Trump attorneys uh, who, frankly, used it to play you, Lou. You got played. So uh, I've been uh, sort of enjoying my own personal uh, quiet victory on that front all weekend long since uh, Dobbs was uh, dumped and as the uh, suit itself for $2.7 billion could spell some real trouble for Fox News itself. Uh, You're welcome. And that, by the way, is before Dominion uh, actually files their suit. Right now it's just Smartmatic. Dominion has also threatened to uh, file suit against Fox News. Uh, They have already sued Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, each of them personally for $1.3 billion. So if they're willing to sue uh, Powell and Giuliani for $1.3 billion, how much are they likely to go after Fox News for? Fox News made, made $3 billion in profit last year. So anyway... If it turns out that I helped destroy Fox News, it will be my proudest achievement, and then I can retire along with Lou Dobbs and Bill O'Reilly, and we can all <laughs> live happily in the cranky old... Except you're not going to have yeah. quite the huge payouts that they get in their contract. <laughs> oh, yeah. You had to point that out. You had yeah. to rub that in, didn't One you, Desi One thing I do want yes. to point out, however, is that yeah. you are not defending voting machine companies. You are defending facts. Thank you. So, you know, just because it happens to be about a voting machine company, facts matter, and it's important that the facts are correct. Yes, they are. And it's important, you know, for all the thousands of stories that I've written on the voting machine companies. They've never threatened to sue me because I'm bothered to get the facts right. Before I report on them. Uh, Speaking of all of this, just before airtime today, news out of Georgia, exclusive from Reuters, the Georgia Secretary of State's office, has reportedly formally opened an investigation into former U.S. President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the state's 2020 election results. That, according to an official who uh, in the office that spoke with Reuters, the investigation, they say, comes after Trump was recorded in a January 2 phone call uh, that is uh, certain to come up in his second impeachment trial, as it's part of the uh, article of impeachment for incitement. Um, uh, That uh, January 2nd phone call pressuring trying to pressure Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to overturn the state's election results based on false claims of voter fraud. And by the way, I'm not defending Brad Raffensperger either. We spent years talking about, uh, in advance of the 2020 election, talking about his terrible decisions to bring Dominion's unverifiable touchscreen voting systems into the state. A uh, spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office in Georgia said the uh, Secretary of State's office investigates complaints it receives and is describing the investigation as, quote, fact-finding and administrative. Any further legal efforts will be left to the attorney general, he said. 
Remember that call to Raffensperger was not the only one made by Donald Trump. It was just the only one that was recorded to our knowledge. Trump also called and harangued the governor, Brian Kemp, who is the former secretary of state uh, and one of the uh, officials who was uh, involved in the audit of the uh, signatures, I believe, the signature matching that Donald Trump insisted they audit um, in one of the counties in Cobb County there. They found no problems with those signatures. They found no problems in the three different statewide counts of the results in Georgia. We'll, of course, keep our eyes on that. But the fun continues today as Donald Trump's second impeachment trial is now set to begin in earnest on Tuesday. Uh, or maybe Wednesday. Opening arguments, I believe, will be on Wednesday. They will be bickering on Tuesday about whether the entire affair is constitutional to hold a, an impeachment trial after a president has left office. It absolutely is constitutional. I'll get to that in a second as well. But lawyers for Donald Trump on Monday blasted the impeachment case against him as, a, as an act of, quote, political theater. They accused House Democrats on the eve of the former president's trial of exploiting the chaos and trauma of last month's Capitol riot for their party's gain. Hmm. I wonder why there was chaos and trauma last month. I'm sure Donald Trump had nothing whatsoever to do with it, right? Trump's final pre-trial legal brief is a wide-ranging attack on the U.S. House case, foreshadowing the claims that his lawyers intend to present on the same Senate floor that was invaded by the rioters on January 6th during the otherwise orderly attempt at official certification by Congress of Joe Biden's Electoral College defeat of Donald Trump. The sharp-tongued tone of the brief, according to AP News, with Accusations the Democrats are making, quote, patently absurd arguments and trying to, quote, silence a political opponent, unquote, makes clear that Trump's lawyers are preparing to challenge both the constitutionality of the trial itself and any suggestion that he was to blame for the deadly attempted insurrection. In their brief, his uh, last-minute lawyers suggest that Trump was simply exercising his First Amendment rights when he disputed the election results and when he argued that he—and uh, and the lawyers argue that he explicitly encouraged his supporters to have a peaceful protest. Therefore, he cannot be held responsible for the action of the rioters. Now, last week, in their initial, much shorter 14-page brief that uh, was filed by the Trump attorneys. They argued, quote, After the November election, the 45th president merely exercised his First Amendment rights under the Constitution to express his belief that the election results were suspect. It is denied, they wrote, that President Trump incited the crowd to engage in destructive behavior. It is denied, they wrote, that the phrase... If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, which Trump said during his remarks to the uh, MAGA mob. Uh, it is denied that that had anything to do with the action at the Capitol, as it was clearly, they write, about the need to fight for election security in general. And that it is denied that Donald Trump intended to interfere with the counting of electoral votes. All of that was just a coincidence, apparently. 
Uh, and besides, it uh, was his First Amendment free speech right to say, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Now, by the way, down there is the Capitol, and that's where they're counting the votes. But, you know, you didn't hear me say it. You didn't hear me tell you. Just a reminder, there is no First Amendment right to incite a riot or an insurrection. Well, we will be talking to my guest about that uh, momentarily, I hope. Um, his, his, before I get there, his attorney, uh, Trump's attorneys, in their filings today, they also say, and, and this is what Republicans in the Senate are mostly coalescing around to try and get Trump off the hook. They're trying to say that the Senate is not entitled to try Trump at all now that he has left office, that that is unconstitutional. Now, that argument, uh, though 45 Republican senators last week voted in support of it um, in this resolution that was forced by Rand Paul, it ha- that argument has been repeatedly rebutted by constitutional law attorneys, including, by the way, conservative Republican attorneys. Ones who point out that despite Rand Paul's repeated assertion that a president cannot be impeached after leaving office, that in fact Trump was impeached while he was still in office and, as importantly, the Congress has held impeachment trials in the past after the executive branch official in question was already out of office. This is nothing new. There is nothing in the Constitution to bar that. And in fact, as one conservative constitutional lawyer pointed out on Sunday in Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, the vote to bar the convicted official from running for future office, as Democrats are hoping to do, uh, that can only take place after the official is actually out of office. Chuck Cooper One of the biggest Republican attorneys in D.C., he rejected the GOP claim on uh, on Sunday in this op ed in the journal. Cooper laid out his his rebuttal where he argued that an official already must be out of office, whether it is through conviction at an impeachment trial or otherwise, like if they resign, they have to be out of office already in order for the Senate to then invoke its constitutional right to disqualify that official from election, from future holding future office. Thus, he writes, a vote by the Senate to disqualify can be taken only after the officer has been removed and is, by definition, a former officer. Given that the Constitution literally permits the Senate to impose the penalty of permanent disqualification only on former office holders, Cooper writes, it defies logic to suggest that the Senate is somehow prohibited from trying and convicting former office holders. The the lawyer urged the senators who had voted in favor of Paul's resolution to, quote, reconsider their view and judge the former president's misconduct on the merits. Cooper's op-ed joins the chorus of constitutional experts who have all, almost all, refuted the Republicans' argument, which is still, incredibly enough, at the center of Donald Trump's defense, according to his attorneys. So again, facts don't matter. The Constitution doesn't matter. uh, The constitutional arguments don't matter. Laying out facts from the Constitution, even from conservative constitutional experts, none of that matters. Facts don't matter. We live in a post-facts world. 
And so they're going to spend the day on Tuesday, it now appears, arguing about whether it is constitutional to hold this uh, to hold this trial at all. Only five Republican senators sided with the Democrats in voting against Rand Paul's resolution last week. Um, However, 17 of them would have to vote to convict to even get to the step where a simple majority vote would determine if Trump would be disqualified from holding future office. House impeachment managers filed their own document on Monday in response to the Trump filing. And uh, they asserted that Trump had, quote, betrayed the American people and that there is no valid excuse or defense for it. His incitement of insurrection against the U.S. government, which disrupted the peaceful transfer of power, is the most grievous constitutional crime ever committed by a president, the Democrats charged. They said that Trump, quote, willfully incited violent insurrection and that the evidence is, quote, overwhelming against him. You know, I think it's really important because the Senate trial is going to be crucial to protect the historical record against any future efforts to revise it, which I think we're already seeing right Mm -hmm. now with Republicans, Senate Republicans trying to gaslight everybody. Mm -hmm. What about what happened and the importance of it and the importance of holding this trial? Which is why I know it drives people crazy, but which is why we have to underscore this stuff. We have to repeat this stuff sometimes. We have to keep telling this stuff. We have Absolutely. to keep sharing different views from different people on it, including, you know, this this big, big time right wing Republican uh, conservative lawyer who says, no, that is just not true. If you want to vote uh, that he's if you want to vote to acquit him, fine, but do it on the merits, not this phony argument about the Constitution. The Democrats, in their response, they also uh, spoke to that phony notion that a trial is somehow barred by the Constitution. Uh, To that point, Bradblog.com legal analyst Ernie Canning, who will be joining me momentarily to to speak about something completely different, uh, he notes to me uh, in a comment uh, via email today, he said, even if we look at basic criminal law, The critical question as to whether a statute of limitations has run out on an individual charged with a crime, uh, the question is whether the indictment was handed down before the statute of limitations period expired. It is not based on when the trial is set to begin. So in this case, the indictment, the impeachment, came while he was still in office. And yes, the trial is happening afterwards. So the Trump argument fails on that score as well. Not that Senate Republicans are looking for a real argument to help them avoid uh, registering a vote on the substance of the charge that Trump incited an insurrection. They just want any reason to avoid having to vote on the substance at all and, you know, risk inflaming Trump supporters uh, against themselves. Nonetheless, as I note, the trial will begin on Tuesday with a debate and a vote on whether it's even constitutional to protect, I'm sorry, to prosecute, well, to protect, to prosecute the former president. And then the uh, opening arguments uh, in earnest, begin on Wednesday at noon Eastern time. Got that, Des? <laughs> noon yes. Eastern. Yes, I do. Uh, where there will be up to 16 hours per side for the uh, presentations. You got that, Des? 16 Whoa. hours? Yeah. Yes. Okay. 
Uh, now, uh, apparently, um, uh, th- this is all uh, according to the draft agreement between uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. The uh, proceedings, however, will take a break on Friday evening for the Jewish Sabbath, that at the request of Trump's defense team, and then they will resume on Sunday. Yeah, I know. Not you happy about that. I know you're but not happy about that. Yeah, there again, uh, historical record. AP notes there will likely be no witnesses, and the former president has declined the invitation from House Democrats to testify under oath because, yes, he is a coward, and of course, because he will be in even bigger trouble than he already is when he lies in response to their questions, which, of course, he would. Okay. meanwhile, the uh, new president and Democrats in Congress are moving Joe Biden's nominations through the Senate, or at least they are trying to. And they are trying to move much needed legislation uh, through both houses. The um, Senate has now confirmed minutes ago President Biden's choice of Dennis McDonough to be the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. When it comes to legislation, Biden's $1.9 trillion emergency COVID relief and stimulus bill, that is now on track to be adopted by a simple majority in the U.S. Senate under Senate budget reconciliation rules. Uh, That'll happen in the weeks ahead as last-minute negotiations are ongoing as to whether lawmakers will lower the means test used to determine which Americans actually will get the promised $1,400 relief checks and uh, and to whether Biden's proposal for a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, whether that will even be allowed in this bill under the special reconciliation rules in the Senate or whether... A $15 an hour minimum wage will have to be passed separately in a vote that would require Democrats to come up with 60 votes to defeat a likely filibuster by Republicans who, I guess, are perfectly cool with the federal minimum wage that keeps uh, someone who works 40 hours a week at poverty levels in the U.S. But the measure that both House and Senate uh, Democrats have listed as their very first official bill H.R. 1 in the House and S. 1 in the Senate is called the For the People Act. It is a massive elections campaign and ethics reform bill with a ton, a ton of great stuff in it, even if some tweaks are needed here and there. Ernie Canning did a fairly deep dive analysis of this massive 800 page uh, measure at Bradblog.com last week. He will join us next to talk about it today. And if time allows, uh, perhaps we'll open up the phones for some quick calls on anything you like at 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. But Ernie joins us next on HR1. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Walking on, walking on, broken down. 
Yes, we are. Walking on broken glass. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. They're walking on broken glass at the U.S. Capitol still, where, uh, as you may have heard, some glass was broken in order for the MAGA mob to break in and try to steal an election. Uh, Nonetheless, in the wake of Donald Trump's attempt to do exactly that by falsely claiming the Democrats were trying to steal the election. That, by the way, is exactly how Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney so accurately and succinctly described it recently, that Trump was claiming it was Democrats trying to steal the election when he, in fact, was doing that himself. Uh, She noted that, I believe, when she voted in favor of Donald Trump's second impeachment Uh, For which, by the way, she was censured by her own state Republican Party in uh, in Wyoming over the weekend. You know, the same Republican Party who pretends to be against cancel culture. Yes, they canceled Liz Cheney over the weekend. Uh, No comment from Colin Kaepernick about uh, that uh, cancel culture and his concerns about that. But in the wake of uh, that failed effort by Trump and Republicans to steal the election last year, Republicans in state legislatures now all over the country are filing new restrictions on voting. Yes, more than 100 bills have been proposed to date by Republicans who are hoping to make it harder to vote, at least for people of certain political persuasion all over the country right now. That is how they are responding to losing the election. But in Congress, at the federal level, Democrats are hoping to block those efforts with a massive bill known as H.R. 1 in the House and S. 1 in the Senate. It's called the For the People Act. It provides a lot of long overdue reforms for voting and fair elections, Uh, Ending dominance of big money and dark money in politics, reinforcing disclosure and ethics reform for members of Congress. It also improves access to the voting booth by creating automatic voter registration across the across the entire country. It restores voting rights for former felons. It expands early voting. It simplifies voting by mail. It restores the Voting Rights Act that was gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2013. It, it blocks massive uh, mass voter roll purges like those we've seen in Ohio and Georgia just before elections and elsewhere. It bars partisan gerrymandering by using independent commissions instead of partisan gerrymandered state legislatures in order to draw up new maps for congressional districts. It includes a call to enfranchise some 700,000 unrepresented American residents who happen to live in our nation's capital by making Washington, D.C. the 51st state. And it mandates, sort of, something that we have been calling for for a very long time on this show and at bradblog.com, the option for every voter to vote on hand-marked paper ballots. Unfortunately, however, this is one point where the current text of H.R. 1 falls down. It requires that voters get the option be given the option to vote on a handmarked paper ballot, but it does not require that that option be given to them at the polling place, which means that election officials can easily say, oh, yeah, sure. You want the option to vote on a handmarked paper ballot? Sure. Instead of 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens, no problem. You can vote by mail. 
Well, that is decidedly not good enough, at least in my opinion. Whether it's enough to oppose passage of this bill, that's a separate question. And whether the bill can pass at all in an evenly divided U.S. Senate is an even bigger question. On Friday, Bradblog.com legal analyst Ernest A. Canning offered a detailed must-read analysis of H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and he joins us to discuss it today. Ernie Canning is Bradblog.com's long-toiling legal analyst and contributor. He is a retired attorney, a Vietnam vet, and during the 2016 presidential campaign, he served as a senior advisor to veterans for Bernie. Oh, Mr. Canning, welcome back to the Bradcast, Counselor. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm doing okay. Hey, listen, I want to ask you about H.R. 1, but there was something else, if I could, very quickly regarding uh, impeachment, because it's something that you have written about in the past. Um, this is, you know, that uh, this is something that very quickly Donald Trump's attorneys, they're claiming that this call to, uh, quote, fight like hell during his speech at the White House on January 6th, that uh, that that was just free speech, his First Amendment right. Never mind. He said it to the murderous MAGA mob uh, that ended up marching down the, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue and attacking the Capitol. I know you've written about Brandenburg v. Ohio before, which provides standards for what is free speech versus what is violent incitement. Can you offer a quick legal take on the Trump attorney's defense uh, that the president was just using his free speech rights when he was making those various claims? Well, in addition to uh, the point that he is not an ordinary citizen, but was the president of the United States and uh, the the filing by the House managers really laid into how that how and why it doesn't apply to him. With regard to speech itself, not all speech is protected. And specifically, Brandenburg holds that a speech that is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to produce such action Mm -hmm. uh, is not protected speech. It's incitement. And if you read the the actual articles of impeachment, they use the incitement language mm-hmm. uh, to bring this within the Brandenburg test. So there has uh, to be... It's not protected. So do I understand that there has to be... Part of the test is whether the violence being discussed, uh, whether the incitement being discussed is imminent. In other words, I could say, hey, someone really ought to do something about Congress. They're terrible. But I can't say someone really ought to do something about Congress. They're right down the street meeting you should go over there and break in and say hello to them. That would be incitement versus free speech, right? Yeah, that's the way I see it. And and the other ev- all the other evidence surrounding it, which you, if you, if anybody reads that brief that which is really lengthy, leading up to it, uh, shows that uh, that he had summoned them to uh, uh, to Washington to do just that, and then when he got them there, he sent them up the street. So you don't think that free speech, uh, well, I guess if we were in a court of law, that First Amendment uh, thing probably wouldn't stand. The judge probably wouldn't even let them argue it. But there is no judge in a impeachment trial, so they get to say whatever they want, I guess. Well, let me, uh, there's one thing I wanted to correct, um, because I was listening to the last seg- segment where you were quoting Mr. Cooper's uh, op-ed. Mm-hmm. The 45 senators that voted did not vote in support of Rand Paul's resolution. What they voted was they voted on a motion to table debate on that resolution. The Democrats didn't want to spend the next week or two debating whether it was constitutional. Mm. And that's what 
uh, five Republicans and all the Democrats voted against, and that's what the 45 voted for. Mm -hmm. So they may not, all 45 may not vote to to agree with them at Mm. the time uh, that the impeachment trial goes forward, that uh, uh, that the um, Mm -hmm. impeachment after he leaves office is unconstitutional. Mm. That isn't the position they took. Okay, good. Good to know, because I have been hearing people in the media saying, well, 45 people voted that this was unconstitutional. 45 Republicans voted that this was unconstitutional. Therefore, impeachment, uh, a conviction is doomed. Well, it may be doomed, but we don't know that for sure. And I think we should listen to the actual arguments made on both sides before we decide. Uh, All right, uh, Ernie, I I, I will point folks uh, to it tonight, to your article when I post tonight's uh, show at bradblog.com, your full analysis of the critical H.R. 1 for the People Act. But just to give folks a taste, there is a lot in this bill. What do you find, if it's possible, what do you find to be the one or two most important elements of this measure? Well, aside from the fact that it pretty much will outlaw most of the um, uh, voter intimidation and and uh, uh, efforts to suppress the vote that the Republicans have engaged in for the past half century, um, I found, for example, just to give you one um, substantive how I see it, it would make a difference, they mm-hmm. end felon disenfranchisement in this. And in fact, felons would have to be on... Uh, as they're leaving prison, mm-hmm. state authorities will have to hand them the voter registration material mm. so that they can sign up right away. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the Florida 2018 Senate race between Rick Scott and Bill Nelson, who'd been the incumbent, mm-hmm. it was decided by a little over 10,000 votes in 2018 with Rick Scott winning. Mm-hmm. Well, there are at the time, there were an estimated 1.6 million voters in Florida that had been disenfranchised by Florida's disenfranchisement law. And they are disproportionately African-American. And uh, I would think that 1.6 million more voters might have made a difference in that election. (laughs) In any event, uh, the the small d Democratic is that, you know, if, if you go and you serve your time, that's fine. You, you violated whatever law it is. You should be able to, at some point in your life, uh, become a good citizen. And uh, one of the things of being a citizen, one of the uh, reasons to be a citizen is that you have a right to vote. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that this law does. And, and the thing is, keep in mind, this only applies to federal elections. But because states don't do registration separately for the state and, and federal elections. Mm-hmm. A lot of these principles that they put into this thing are going to be upheld because the federal government, if it enters under the uh, elections clause, if, if the Congress decides to to regulate the time, place, and manner of federal elections, that's going to be binding on the states. Uh, the issue with regard to registration, it's not only that they allow for same-day registration, in online registration, but they're going to be required to allow voters access so they can check their registration uh, um, to make sure that they're still on and haven't been purged. Mm-hmm. And all those things are very vital, uh, given the millions of voters that have been disenfranchised between elections in the past uh, uh, for illegitimate means, uh, means such as uh, having a faulty database that uh, uh, interstate database for for checking registrations. Mm-hmm. Um, 
millions of voters were were removed from the rolls, and these purges are completely undemocratic. Uh, on the on the on the field of uh, of when you're dealing with, and I think the important thing is that you really have have to get this done this time around. Uh, one of the major problems has to do with the uh, gerrymandering of the uh, uh, congressional districts, mm-hmm. and if you allow those districts to be gerrymandered, uh, uh, there's a good chance that Democrats will not be in control of the House. Uh, two years from now, uh, not because they have lost more votes, but because the way that the uh, districts are restructured uh, uh, this next time around uh, will allow the Republicans to take seats they shouldn't. Yeah, there's going to be new um, new districts drawn up after this uh, the 2020 census, if those if that data ever comes in. Uh, and there will be new maps. And if it's drawn up once again to make sure that, you know, Democrats are blocked in Republican-controlled states, they could draw these maps in a way that, yeah, just buys them a uh, Republican majority in the U.S. House. That is important. And also, Ernie, on on your point on the felons, let me just uh, be clear. These are—this this bill would give former felons, uh, as soon as they are no longer jailed, uh, the right to vote again all across the country. And if you're in jail, there are tons of folks who are in jail who are uh, in there for misdemeanors, who are not even who are charged with something but have never gone to trial. Those people are also currently being disenfranchised in almost all 50 states. So they would be allowed to vote as well. And I will go even further than the uh, Democrats here have in H.R. 1. I would say even if you are in jail, even if you are serving time for a felony, you ought to be able to vote. Because I think that no one is more affected by the laws of this land than people who have been jailed by them. Uh, that's where I go you know, farther than the Democrats here. But I, I think it's important and I, uh, I think it's noteworthy that you know, you, you see that as uh, one of the most noteworthy points in this entire bill. Um, very quickly, I want, I want to hit two points with you, Ernie. Uh, one, you described the concerns about the, uh, the, the loophole in the language that would uh, allow election officials to not offer verifiable hand-marked paper ballots at the polls for all voters. Um, you know, even though the measure acts as if it gives that option, it does give that option, but not at the polling place for all voters. So um, well, I think it's ambiguous is what it is. Well, if and, and, and we, I think you have to remove it. But we we know that if there's an ambiguous phrase like that, election officials will take advantage of it and they can very easily say, as it is written, oh, you have the option it says voters shall have the option to mark his or her ballot by hand. Yeah, you have that option. You have the option to vote by mail. You don't have that option here at the polling place. And you know that they will use that. So uh, that said, is that enough, in your opinion, to oppose this measure? If that language cannot be changed, is it enough to oppose this measure? Because bills like this are passed at best every several decades when we're lucky. No, it's less than the ideal, but it's certainly not a reason to oppose the measure. But I do think they can. It's so simple to to correct this. The section they have this in, if anybody goes to read the bill, which we've linked to, is section fifteen o two, and fifteen o three includes uh, uh, you know use of machines for 
for uh, uh, disabled voters. And so what I propose is, and this is real simple language, all voters shall mark their ballots by hand, pen and paper, with an exception for disabled voters who, upon request, must be afforded the opportunity to vote in the manner set forth in Section 1503. Mm -hmm. And I think that that simple change in the language uh, would get exactly what you're concerned with, Brad, and that is that we need to have verifiable elections. And the only way to know that we have a verifiable election is for people to cast hand-marked paper ballots. By the way, they use the words voter verified. It's not really voter verified paper ballots. It's voter verifiable because uh, people don't always check their ballots to verify that that they've correctly marked them. When Well, when they're dealing with the touchscreen system, because the computer can change their ballots and we don't know if they verify mm-hmm. them or not. A hand-marked paper ballot is, by its nature, verified when the voter actually verifies it by filling it in. But I will say uh, there's a reason. Uh, I know it wouldn't take much of a change, and yet they haven't changed it, which tells me that uh, Democrats uh, don't want to uh, you know, make a law that, for example, here in Los Angeles, if you go to vote at the polls, you're going to have to vote on an unverifiable touchscreen system now. So they could uh, make I that think, changes, I, I but they, they haven't done it. Yeah. I think they would if you, if you get it in the committee and the point is made, because the, the way I read this, that's what they really intend. They just haven't. They've done a poor job of drafting it. I disagree. I think okay. the Democrats know damn well what they are doing here. But we will see. Uh, that said, uh, Ernie, what are the chances, as you see it, of this bill actually being passed at all by the Senate? It's a 50-50 Senate, a Dem majority of one with the vote of the vice president to break ties. I mean, they're going to have to do away with the legislative filibuster, it seems to me, in order to pass this thing, because I don't think they'll get a single Republican vote in the U.S. Senate, much less the 10 they would need to overcome the filibuster. I don't think they get the 10. The question of whether you, you know, this this issue would really bothers me. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. This is about maintaining the integrity of our elections. And and I don't care what party you're from, you should support that. But you're right, it, it may be a problem. And I think a lot of pressure by people all across the country should be brought to bear, especially on someone like Joe Manchin. Uh, we have states right now that in, in there are multiple bills being proposed to try and cut back on voting rights. Uh, especially in a lot of the swing states mm-hmm. uh, uh, like uh, Georgia and, and uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, where they are, the Republicans in these gerrymandered uh, legislatures are attempting to deprive voters of the very rights that they just voted on in this last election because they don't like what's what's come out of it. And that's not the way democracy should be run. It should be that everyone who is a citizen has a right to vote and should be encouraged to vote, not the opposite. So I I think um, Democrats are going to have to be prepared. I I quoted from, um, if you remember, there was an article we wrote back in 2016 where we were quoting the neoconservative columnist, Mac Boot, who had written an article about Nazi echoes in Trump's tweets. And I quoted from uh, what the sarcastic remark made by Joseph Goebbels uh, when he was talking about the collapse of Germany's fragile democracy with the Weimar Republic. Mm -hmm. And he said this, and I'll quote it, it will always 
be democracy's best joke that it provided its mortal enemies with the means by which it was destroyed. We cannot allow the filibuster to be the tool by which our democracy is destroyed. And we've just come through a horrific event on January 6th that shows our democracy is far more fragile than we've realized. And if we don't do something this time around, it may be too late next time around. Exactly, which is why we need to get rid of the filibuster. It ain't in the Constitution. We can get rid of it tomorrow if uh, senators wanted to. And, of course, uh, at least 50 of them don't. All right, Ernie Canning, thank you very much uh, for your coverage. As I said, I'll point folks over to your article titled uh, H.R. 1, Ambitious Democratic Measure Tackles Vote Vote Suppression Enhances Election Security. That's at bradblog.com. I uh, really appreciate you joining us as ever uh, today. Ernie Ernie Canning can also be found on the Twitters at can the number four ing. That's C A N N the number four ing. Can four ing. No idea why that's his Twitter handle, but there you have it. Thanks, Ernie. Thank you, Brad, and thanks for all you've been doing. Back at you. All right, let's take a quick break here. And uh, we've got some, we'll come back with some political, actually, versus policy news as a member of Congress has died today from COVID, the first sitting member of Congress to do so. And uh, we will have another Republican vacancy in the U.S. Senate, according to yet another senator who is running for the hills today. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our closing few minutes here today. I had hoped to uh, take some calls. Whether I'll have time or not, now I don't know. 818 985 KPFK is our phone number if you want to try and get in at the last minute. Uh, But I do want to give out the phone number for the U.S. Capitol. Ernie said that uh, it's important to bring pressure on your members of Congress to get H.R. 1 passed in the House and uh, S. 1 passed in the Senate. The uh, the Capitol, U.S. Capitol phone number where you can reach your both your representatives and your Senate uh, senators is 202 224-3121. Write that down, please. 202-224-3121. Particularly if you're listening in, oh, I don't know, West Virginia or Arizona, where we may have to push uh, both Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema in Arizona to do away with the filibuster in order to get any of this good stuff passed. Uh, Okay, very quickly here, Congressman Ron Wright, Republican of Texas, died on Sunday after being hospitalized for COVID-19, according to his office today. Uh, He had also been battling cancer. 
His office said in a statement that Congressman Ron Wright passed away peacefully at the age of 67. For the previous two weeks, Ron and his wife Susan had been admitted to Baylor Hospital in Dallas after contracting COVID-19. Spokesperson said he passed away from health complications following his COVID-19 diagnosis. He was elected, he was re-elected to a second term in November. He passed away a little bit more than two weeks after he tested positive for coronavirus on January 21. At the time, he said in a statement he had been experiencing minor symptoms, but overall, I feel okay, he said. Uh, He died then two weeks later. He represented Texas's 6th Congressional District. Uh, In uh, in late December, Republican Congressman-elect Luke Letlow, he also died from COVID-19 before he could even be sworn in for the first time. Uh, He died just a few days before the start of the new congressional session. Uh, A number of lawmakers have also tested positive for COVID-19 over the past year. Uh, Congressman Wright and Congressman-elect Letlow were the first to actually die from it. Also today, Senior, uh, I'm sorry, Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama uh, said he will not seek a seventh term in the U.S. Senate. He's the uh, Republican who has been serving since in the Senate since 1986, which means there are going to now be a lot of retiring U.S. senators in 2022. We'll have to pick that one up tomorrow on the broadcast. I hope you will join us for that. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Federico Garcia, and of course, to my guest, Ernie Canning, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there until I see you here, hopefully tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>